teaching now. Uh, we've been in a series on Sunday mornings looking at a theme. Um, and the theme has been gospel as center in matters of race, justice, and humanity. And we felt that this is a really important moment for us in this season to take a look at some topics and themes that are in the Bible that also kind of cross-pollinate with much of society at large. Um, we've been attempting to do this because we recognize that uh, many of the terms and ideas and concepts that are from the scripture um, that have also kind of been used in culture as well at large that are kind of on the center stage right now, they don't always share the exact same definition. So I think it's easy for us, and by way of a, a matter of discipleship, meaning following Jesus, we want to make sure that we have a, a biblical understanding of what these matters and words mean. Now, I've said this before several weeks in a row that, you know, for me, um, I'm, I'm typically a teach-through-the-Bible type of a person, and so this is outside of my comfort zone, um, and we have been attempting to do this between four to six weeks or so. I, I told you kind of from the beginning, it might be a, a week or two more or less, um, but the big idea is um, we're looking at these themes, these topics, because of the importance that they play in our role and, again, for our discipleship. Um, and as soon as we're done with this series, we'll be kind of within the moment of Advent, uh, meaning coming to the time of um, celebrating the birth of Jesus. And then we will, after that, begin to jump into another book of the Bible and begin to just kind of do what we do uh, you know, what I like to do is kind of more comfortable for me is just going through uh, certain books of the Bible, and hopefully that will be a benefit. So until then, um, hopefully this has been a help to you guys. Uh, one other thing I want to also lay out just before I jump in is uh, wanting to invite even more engagement. We've been saying that part of the way that we're doing this um, because of the teaching on Sunday mornings is going to be a little bit shorter than what we've been used to and what I'm definitely used to as far as uh, going kind of long, right? Um, I'm, I'm really trying to uh, exercise the discipline of not going forever because we have families out here, and especially in days like today, we don't want to see you melt into a, you know, a puddle of, of, of liquid on, on the hot cement. Um, so you're, you're welcome. Um, but the big idea is that uh, we realize that I'm not able to say everything that maybe could or should be or maybe you want me to say, um, but that doesn't mean it's not significant or it's not important or it doesn't mean that I might not even have opinions on it or something to say about it. Um, so with that being said, um, I'm opening up the floor space to you immediately following the message to come to me directly right away. And, uh, you know, so write down your questions. If I'll, as I'm talking, something comes up and you're like, oh, I want to know what he has to say about whatever it is, fill in the blank. Come talk to me immediately afterwards. I'm willing to stay here as long as we need to try to help bring about uh, proper processing on these topics, you know, um, or Thursday night, my wife and I have a community that meets um, and we would love to gather together with you so that we can process this teaching. Lastly, I'll throw out another new one that we just added this week, which hopefully might even be helpful. This actually puts power in the very palm of your hand. Um, it, we did this a few years ago. There's an app called Slido, um, and it basically allows you to ask any question you want through this app that's on your hand. If you're trying to figure out how to access Slido, Look around the parking lot, you should see these big white posters that have a QR code on there. That is your all-access pass to Slido as well as a handful of other things. You can give online through that. You can access our, our e-weekly newsletter, find out what's happening in our church. Just grab your phone out, and you should be able to just open it up and just scan that QR code. If you have no idea what a QR code is, if I just completely threw you off 
track and you're like, I was following him. And all of a sudden he throws out this QR code terminology. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, find someone who looks like they're under the age of 30. They'd be happy to help you figure out how to use your phone, unless you have a flip phone, uh, to try to access the QR code to get you connected with all this information. But if you go to Slido, just go to that app and then you type in your question. If there's any questions that are already on there that you don't need to necessarily type in there. You can actually just upvote it and it'll go to the top. And I will do the best that I can to try to answer those questions. I'm trying to figure out the best way to go about that. I might do uh, an additional podcast on our weekly thing. I'm still trying to figure that out. But at least if I can get the content in hand from you guys, then I'll do my best to try to access that and to answer that. Like I said before, don't send me emails. I don't, I don't, I'm not interested in email. It just takes too long for me to, to formulate thoughts and write it out and make sure that my grammar is all adequate and sufficient, all that. So just either come talk to me face to face, come to my thing on Thursday night, um, or do Slido. And I'm happy to help address anything that's going on in your life right now with regard to the topic that we're at, uh, at that's at hand. So with that being said, I want to jump right in. I want to take a look at uh, each week as we've been looking at these themes, been looking at a particular topic or scripture, I should say, that ties into this. So why don't you guys open your Bible to the book of Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 through 37. So I got a lot that I'm going to try to cover today. I'm going to go a little bit fast. Hopefully you're okay with that. I'm going to go a little bit fast, try to cover as much as I can. Um, I'm not going to get through all of it, um, which will kind of lead into next week. And so then we'll be done officially with the justice segment of this teaching. And then after that, we'll begin to take a look at some other topics like power and neighborly kindness and some of these other elements that, that are really essential to the big topics that are hand, at hand right now, whether it be politics or Black Lives Matter, or people that are feeling a sense of injustice, or the types of racism, or some of these terminologies that you hear that are constantly in the news media right now, that we we truly believe that the Bible actually addresses these things, but we want to make sure that we address them and engage them on the biblical basis in which we find themselves, and not just simply from the secular perspective. So with that being said, Daniel chapter 4, hopefully you're there, Daniel chapter 4, verse 34 to 37, I want to read this, this is the story, it's kind of the testimonial of a guy by the name of King Nebuchadnezzar. If you have no idea who he is, King Nebuchadnezzar was a world militaristic superpower tyrant, right? He was by all definition of, you know, secular terminology, he was an oppressor. He was responsible for the displacement, personally responsible for the displacement and destruction of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of human beings made in the image of God. So in other words, this guy's rap sheet was massive, he wreck havoc on so many people, more than all of us could ever be combined in a lifetime. He was responsible for that. However, Nebuchadnezzar has an encounter with Yahweh God. And this is his story. Listen to it. After these things, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I lifted up. Now, again, one final quick caveat. Uh, he gets struck down, goes through a season of literally losing his mind um, because when you have all that power and you are aimed at trying to protect that power, because if you got power, your number one aim next is a power play is to protect that power, right? So whether you have a lot of money, you, you know, hire thugs or mercenaries or an army, or you build up your militaristic, you know, world superpower, super machine in order to protect that power. But that becomes an agonizingly stressful life, right? So much so to the point where Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind, just like maybe some of us at moments in our life have lost our mind because we're trying to maintain or uphold or create some degree of power. So that's what happens with Nebuchadnezzar. However, he comes to his senses. He meets God. This is what he says. After these things, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I lifted up my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed 
the most high God, and I praise and honor him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. Listen to what he says. For his works, God's works, are just and right. These are our two Hebrew words that we've been looking at. Mishpat, which is oftentimes translated just or justice, and then right or righteousness, which is the word tzedakah. And then he goes on to say, and those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. So this is a story. And what I love about this story is, to me, if anything, the initial takeaway is no matter how far gone you are, no matter how much of an abuser you have been in your life, how much of an oppressor you have been, how much destruction or ruin or uh, chaos you have unleashed in the lives of people closest to you or even those in your wake, your field of influence, there's still redemption for you. I hope you know that. that that's, that's really good news. You're not too far beyond God's ability to save and redeem and heal and nebuchadnezzar is an example of this so i love this story because it kind of sets us in this direction as we begin to look at the subject matter of justice and how this kind of plays out in the scripture so uh, a couple weeks ago we began to look at how there's five facets that have kind of been identified uh for the most part this is kind of taken from tim keller pastor tim keller's um assessment of this and we've just been sort of following that um outline, but then kind of weaving in the, the scripture and the text and looking at the text themselves, but more or less just kind of following the outline. So the five facets of justice that we've been looking at um, over the past few weeks have been number one, community, number two, equity, number three, corporate responsibility. Fourthly, we're going to look at right now, individual responsibility. And then fifthly, uh, we will look at the following week, next week, the subject of right here advocacy so stay tuned for next week we will get very practical as to what does it actually look like for us to be advocates for justice in this world the bible actually addresses that we'll take a look at some ways in which this plays out but right now i want to just take a look at specifically the subject matter of individual responsibility because this plays out which means in a very practical sense how you live your life, how you treat and respond to circumstances that may be adverse into your life will have a direct impact in terms of how and the type of person you will end up becoming. But how of a person you end up becoming will also involve how you treat other people. You know, we've all heard that adage, hurt people hurt people. But it doesn't always have to be that way. But typically, people that are prone to hurting others do so because they themselves have been hurt. Though there are occasions where people have been extremely hurt and they become a type of person that actually uses that hurt to bring healing. Case in point, Jesus, right? Case in point, Jesus. But the point that I'd make is it has to do with this idea of individual responsibility. Tim Keller would go on to say in this article, he says this and I'll just quote it. He says, I am responsible finally for all my sins, but not necessarily all my outcomes. So I want to take a look at those two aspects. Number one, outcomes, the outcomes that end up happening throughout my life, things that take place as a result of my decisions. And then we'll take a look at the subject of sins. What does it mean to be individually as a person? Uh, responsible or accountable to the outcomes that happen in my life as well as the sins or rebellion or transgressions that oftentimes get up get taking place within my life so first of all let's take a look at the subject of outcomes um, we recognize that scripture actually teaches that success or failure in life is not wholly linked to individual choices this is important 
You know, there's this idea that oftentimes it says, well, look, anybody can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and make something of their life. That's kind of true, but not entirely true. What about someone that is, you know, they, they have very, very adverse circumstances that have been set against them. Now, again, some would look at others that have had, you know, extremely uh, horrible circumstances take place in their life, and then they somehow get ahead. But then there's others that maybe seem to have let everything going for them, and yet they make a mess out of their life. So what I think is important to identify is that the Bible actually points out that even though one has success, success or failure in life, it's not wholly linked to your individual choices, though it's not disconnected from individual choices. I would put it this way. It's not less than individual choices, but there are, it's, it's more also that's at play with regard to this. So for example, poverty may be brought on by personal failure to be responsible, to get a job, to, you know, take care of your life because you're sitting around playing video games all day long instead of getting a job and paying your rent. Or it can be as a result of circumstances or systems that are in place that are beyond your control. And scripture actually addresses both of these. So what I want to do right now is I'm going to give some, rather than me giving my opinion, I want to just point to scripture and how this kind of plays out. So number one, let's take a look at the, uh, the idea of lack of responsibility or the way that the scripture is going to determine it is laziness, right? It's a word that we, we don't really use that very often, but uh, scripture actually does. Listen to how Proverbs chapter six, verses six through seven says, Solomon says, go to the ant, you sluggard, which is just an old way of saying you lazy person, you lazy bum, you lazy human being. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer. She gathers her food in the harvest. When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, and poverty will come upon you. So according to Solomon, who's pretty wise, he makes this observation, this assessment, that there's a, there's a correlation between those that have nothing in the midst of winter and how they respond during summer when they have access and availability to goods and services and other these, these other things available. And his assessment is that there seems to be a correlation between being lazy or not availing oneself of hard work and effort and energy and poverty that can take place in the summer. Now, again, we'll get to the, the, the flip side of this point in just a moment. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. So go ahead and you can turn there real quick and write these down. Again, I realize this is a lot of information, but I want to try to go through as quickly as I can. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 12. Paul actually writes this. So this is from the New Testament. Paul's writing to a community of people that are trying to live out the ways of Jesus. And he says this, We commend you, brothers, which is just a gender-neutral term for both male and female. We commend you, brothers, um, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that you keep away from any brother, anybody, any brother or sister who is walking in idleness. The word that's used there in the Greek for idleness is uh, who is unruly or who is a disorderly brother. In other words, they, they have not organized their life in such a way to bring uh, peace and shalom. They are, they are disorderly. He says, and that you are to not be in accord with the, that are not in, in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Verse 7, he says, for you yourselves know you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. For even when we were with you, we gave you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that there are some among you who walk in idleness, not busy at work, but they're busy bodies, right? Uh, they're not working. They're not using the energy that they have to provide for themselves. They're just kind of mooching off of everybody else. And Paul, Paul actually rebukes this. Now, some might hear this and be like, well, that's not very compassionate. But what I would suggest to you, again... This kind of plays into how we read the Bible. 
I think there's a tendency for us to read the Bible and object to certain elements. Be like, I don't like that. And, and that's fine. It's fine for you to be honest and say you don't like that. But what's good, what's important to just recognize, this is what the Scripture teaches. So we, we have an opportunity to either receive it and to align our lives and our sentiments in accordance with it, or we can resist it and then find an alternative way, which, by, by the way, we will always find an alternative. For the most part, that is coming from secular versions. And so what I would suggest, what Paul is saying is that within the community, the way that a community works justly together is everybody does their very best to work with their hands, to make a living, to be careful to contribute to the community, just like what we've been talking about. Then in verse 12, Paul goes on to say, now such persons we commend and encourage to the Lord Jesus to do their own work quietly and to earn their own living. So Paul's whole point is that the way this community is going to function well is if people are working hard with what they have. The whole idea, if you want to think of it this way, is that, look, if you have a gift of a job, then use that job as a way to, to learn, to train yourself in the art of paying your way. Not necessarily relying upon systems that are also there in place. And again, this, this kind of runs counter to a lot of the way in which the world might even think right now. I'm just trying to let the scripture speak for itself. So that's the idea of lack of responsibility that can oftentimes play into unfortunate outcomes. So both Paul as well as the Old Testament are basically saying, look, if you are in poverty, if you are in want or in lack, it may be due to the fact that you are, you're lazy, and that's something to consider and think about. Excuse me. And, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry. Don't you hate that when a speaker does that? You're like, ah. It, it, there's always that awkward pause and silence of like cricket stripping. So there you go. Second thing I want to take a look at are the factors that are often as beyond my control. So number one, we looked at my outcomes. Uh, secondly, I want to take a look at uh, some of these other factors that are often as beyond my control. So again, it may also exist that there are factors that are way beyond my control that have set my life at a disadvantage from other people. That might be disease, that might be an accident, might be some form of misfortune, or there might be systems of injustice that are at play that are setting the cards against me. And therefore, I'm in that system where I'm not able to advance, I'm not able to get ahead, I'm not able to somehow... Uh, even though you might be a hard worker, and it might be because you're in a system that's, that's paying you less than other people. It might be, and again, there's a lot of contributing factors that might be going on here. Um, I didn't mention this last week. I meant to. But one of the good examples, I would say, that took place in common culture at large was in the 90s, that there was uh, what was called the ADA, the American with Disabilities Act, that took place. And it was a way of basically saying, look, there's a lot of people that have disabilities. In fact, there's 57 million people in America right now. They have some degree of disability, and they're not able to. So you can say, hey, get up to the stage. And they're like, I, I can't get up on the stage. I'm not able to get up on the stage. And so, yeah, there were laws that were created that said, let's create a, a playing field that helps those people. So we can give commands and issue desires, but if someone's not able to get that. So it's about creating systems that can help people do that. I think it's a positive example of that. But what happens if there are circumstances that are way beyond or factors that are beyond my control? And that also plays in this as well. I'll give you a couple of other examples of how Scripture addresses this. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 23 says this. The follow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. It's an interesting phrase. Like, 
what exactly does it mean? So it seems as if what the psalmist or the uh, proverb uh, Solomon, whoever is writing this, is suggesting that it would it would look as if the field. So you plant your crop in the field, you plant your seed just like anybody else. However, for some reason, what the proverb writer is identifying is that there is not uh, growth due to injustice. What does that mean? Now, again, this is just pure conjecture, and this is my opinion, my guess, but back in the day, it was not uncommon for one conquering kingdom or one, you know, faction that's happening within a culture society, if they wanted to get back in a bad way against another community of people, they would do what was called salting the field. They would pour all sorts of salt over a large portion of the field, and that salt would create uh, an uninhabitable condition for life. It was, an, it was an injustice that was done. Now, again, depending upon the amount of rain and what type of season that they had, that salt can last longer or shorter based upon all of these other factors. But the point of the matter is, let's say, for example, you are a poor person living in Israel, and all you have is a very you know, small segment of field, and that field happened to be very cheap. Uh, to acquire because it was a field of, you know, 18 months prior that was salted by, you know, the enemies. Well, you're going to try to grow your crops and it's not going to grow. Was it your fault? Is it because you didn't work hard enough? Because you didn't get out there and sweat and toil in the midst of the, you know, hot summer Sunday? No, you did all of those things. However, what Solomon is telling us that due to injustice, this crop is not able to produce so in other words, it was, it was an adverse circumstance based upon something that was beyond their control that prohibited them from being able to have some degree of advancement within the culture and society. Uh, Exodus chapter 22, verse 21 through 27. We've been reading this for the past few weeks as well, but it's, there's a lot there that I'll just make a quick highlight of it. Um, we're told that God actually commands it. I'm just going to make allusion to it. God commands his people to create systems that don't treat foreigners unjustly and prejudicially. In other words, it's very possible for a culture to become so tribalistic that if a foreigner comes in from the outside, for that system, that culture, that community, look at that foreigner and be like, we don't know who they are. They've got you know, different skin color than us. It looks like they worship different gods than us. It looks like they are completely foreign. Therefore, we will treat them by judging them. We will treat them as an unwelcome guest in this community, which means they will have adverse circumstances take place in their life. And God is saying, no, 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 create even the foreigner, as if they belong in your midst. So in other words, what God is suggesting is something so radical. Other cultures, communities, societies did not operate this way, but, but God did. So lastly, what I want to do right now is I want to take a look at, we saw the outcomes, individual uh, responsibility in terms of outcomes. I want to take a look at individual responsibility in terms of sins. I'm going to read a quote, and then we'll just get into some lengthy passages of Scripture, and I'll wrap it up. So number one, Tim Keller says this. The Bible insists that ultimately our salvation lies in what we do as individuals. It's important to note this. Ultimately, what we do as individuals. There is an asymmetrical balance between individual and corporate responsibility. Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 16 says that in ordinary human law, we must be held responsible and accountable for our own sins, not for those of our parents. It's important to note this. Important how the Bible identifies this. We are indeed the product of our communities, but not wholly, not completely, because we can have a mom and dad that had gone a really bad way, made really bad decisions, done really bad things, and yet as a as a child, we can make decisions that take us an entirely different route that allows us to become a righteous and a just human being. 
I mean, I think if we were to look at other human being and human examples that we know, we, we've all met people that have come from maybe a, a bad family lineage, and they made a choice along the way. Maybe they met Jesus, God gives them grace, and they become an entirely different person, and they break this generational you know, relationship with the past of sin and proclivities. Uh, he goes on to say that Ezekiel 18 is a case study in what can happen if we put too much emphasis on corporate responsibility. It leads to fatalism and irresponsibility. The reality of corporate sin does not swallow up individual moral responsibility, nor does individual responsibility disprove the reality of corporate evil. To deny either is to adopt one of the secular views of justice rather than a biblical one. And uh, again, I'm not going to get into it in this message uh, I've been saying this past few weeks, if you want a really good article to read on the differences of justice and definitions that are at play within our culture right now. So when someone says justice, don't assume that it is, it is in direct alignment with what the Bible speaks about justice. It's important to identify this. And Keller goes into some great length trying to identify different ways in which justice plays out. So I would, you know, uh, commend you to read this and hopefully it would be helpful if that's something that you're looking to dig a little bit deeper into. But before we jump into a couple passages, I want to just consider a couple distortions that can be linked to two major ideas I think that play in our culture right now. And they're not new. They've been around for a long time and I think they've morphed. But especially in our culture right now, there are two major ideas that I think if we put too much stock and too much emphasis upon them, they actually lead to major distortions in what it means to actually live out a life of justice and righteousness in the way that God invites us to. Number one is group identity. Uh, this also comes up in other ways that's described as collective identity or class consciousness. And this is the idea that basically says you are the sum total of your race, your religion, and your, your gender. So, for example, um, I being a white male Christian, to say somehow link me together with every other human being that's white, that's male and a Christian to say that what every white male Christian has ever done in the past, that I'm somehow responsible for their misdeeds or actions, I, I think is actually an unbiblical way to live. It, it is, that's more reflective in the class conscious moment that we live in today. That's trying to, to some degree, create factions and break things down into strata and they nurture grievances and they create even more injustice and chaos because it's an injustice against how God has intended for things to play out. The second distortion I think we got to think about, not only in light of group identity or collective identity or class consciousness, is to think about victim identity. In other words, where we look at the sum total of our past and the circumstances that have happened to us and become identified by our victim status. Now, I want to be really clear about this because some of us as human beings right now have been victims of horrible sins that have happened to us. But what I want for us to think about is that the way the Bible identifies this is that what's happened to you is distinct from the identity that you assume. Let me say that again. What's happened to you in the past is distinct from the identity that God is inviting you into to receive. Now, what happens if we take circumstances and hardships and trauma and difficulties that we face in the past and we begin to find our identity in that what happens is that we then become prone i think to drift from the identity that god's wanting to give us and create in us and 
we then oftentimes begin to create this stratification or classification of people that are, that, are, that are like us, then at some point we begin to look for people that have maybe been the cause of that, and then we demonize those things. They become our enemies, and in this, stat, this uh, status, we oftentimes then become, we, we become those that look for vindication instead of justice, and there's a difference. So what I want to do right now is I want to just finish up with a couple quick verses, and I'm done. So Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16 says this, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children. Nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death based upon their own sin. So in this is sort of a morphing of this idea that says, well, your dad was a horrible human being, so therefore you're linked or grouped to your dad's identity. Therefore, we're going to destroy you. That's very common in our world today. It's very common in various forms of secular justice today. But it's not how the Bible identifies it. That God is basically beginning to say that you are responsible so if you sin, you are responsible to take that sin to God, to confess it, to repent, to turn from it. Now, I want to read Ezekiel chapter 18, and I'm done. So it's kind of a, it's, it's a chapter I'm going to try to get through as much of it as I can without going very overboard, without having you watch, watch you melt in the sun. So just listen, try to pay attention, then we'll wrap this up. Ezekiel 18, in fact, if you'd like to write this down, my invitation to you would be to read it at a later date, because I think this is an extremely important passage to be familiar with. I'll read verse 1, and then I'll kind of go through some other segments. Verse 1 of chapter 18 says, As the word of the Lord came to me, what do you mean by repeating the proverb concerning the land of Israel? Here's the proverb. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. God says, As I live, declares the Lord. This proverb shall no longer be used throughout Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. Then God says, the soul who sins shall be the one that pays for it, dies. The individual that does something wrong, it's not the father. He's not accountable necessarily to the family of origin that did wrong. And just in case there's any ambiguity here, God actually goes into this case study to define it even further. Again, I think it's really important for us to just uh, listen to this. Verse 5, he says this. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right. These are two words, uh, tzedakah and mishpat. If he is living in an alignment with the heart of God, which God loves justice and righteousness. If this man is righteous and just and he does not eat Upon the mountains, or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, or approach a woman um, in her time of menstrual impurity, which I'm not even going to touch that right now. Verse 7, he says, does not oppress anyone, but restores, restores the debtor his pledge, commits to robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, covers the naked with a garment, does not lend uh, with interest to take any profit, withholds any hand from injustice. He says he executes true justice, mishpat, between man and man. He walks in my statutes, keeps my laws by acting faithfully. He is righteous, God says, and he shall surely live, declares the Lord. This is God's way of basically saying this, this person's human being. They're doing a good job. They're trying to trust me, walk in a way that reflects my statutes in this world. Then he goes on in this case study. He says, now, if that man has a son, verse 10, if he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, he does 
not do any of these things, though he himself did none of these things. Uh, who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and the needy, commits robbery, does not restore a pledge, lifts up his eyes with the idols, commits abomination, lends interest, takes profit, so on and so forth. God then goes on to say, he says, he shall not live. He has done all of these abominations. He shall surely die. The implication being his father will not die. But he will be held accountable and responsible for the actions and misdeeds and evil and injustices that he has done. Even though his father didn't do any of that. Verse 14, again, this thing just kind of gets played out. It's like, let's say that guy, the really bad guy, has a son. And his son's really good, right? You can already kind of see where this goes. Then what? Then God goes on to say in verse 17 verse 18 as for his father behold he practiced extortion robbed his brother and did what was not good his people behold he shall die for his iniquity in other words his father will be the one that's held accountable for the sin that he had done though he who had made a conscientious effort to trust my ways he will be treated with that sense of justice and equity verse 19 let's just keep going i'm almost done yet you say why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father this is where it gets really important because our culture right now, in some ways, are saying, even though you may not have committed racial misdeeds, there is an accountability you owe. Now, again, I want to be really careful here. Part of our discipleship, me, we'll answer next week. How do we walk in a way that's seemingly fit with the way that God sets standards up, but also at the same time are able to feel and sense compassion and kindness and generosity and bring will be done? He goes on to say, verse 19, yet you say, should not the son suffer? Says, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness and the righteous shall be upon him. It says in verse 30, therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone, and turn from your transgressions, lest iniquity be upon your ruin. Cast away from anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn to me and live. And it's not until we come to the New Testament where we see Jesus, who is in our culture today, we'll look at and be like, Jesus is amazing. He's lifting up those that are downtrodden. He's pulling out from the margins those that have been hidden and forgotten and obscured. He's taking those that have been shut down or uh, suffered, attached to them, and he's giving them dignity, value, and respect. Us. As he comes to people, the victims of oppression and pain and hurt, but we've also been those that have caused it as well. And Jesus takes all of that upon himself and takes responsibility, not only for ourselves, but for others. Jesus had no reason to take responsibility for himself because he was already that deserve it, not. And to the degree that you see that and receive that and are trained on, on other people that are like, well, they fail because they are living in the hood or they're not doing good for themselves. They're not working. And you, you, there's no room for you to condescend upon anybody because you were the broken one that God lifted. You were the one that was far from him. You were the one that was so messed up and lost. And yet Jesus found you. That changes our posture to saying, I've been shown such grace kindness and mercy i want to show grace kindness and mercy even to those that might not even deserve it even to those if your theological presuppositions of jesus does not include love for enemy then there's an area of your discipleship that needs to grow how you think about the enemy is really important 
Jesus loves the enemy. This is why in modern constructs of justice, there may be overlap in some of the things that look biblical, but ultimately at the end of the day, they do not withstand the test of time in all of the robustness that the gospel offers, even enemy love. So this is an invitation for us to look at our lives carefully and reflect upon who God is. And as we close, we have the guys come on up. They're going to lead us in a closing song. We're going to partake of communion together. If you would like to partake of communion with us, as the ushers hand out the little cup and the little wafer that's on top, uh, go ahead and grab one. If you don't want to take one, it's fine. You can just let it pass. It's an opportunity for us to just respond to God. So why don't we all stand, and we will sing a song, and then at the end of that song, we'll partake together. And at that moment, we will say goodbye to our online audience. Again, the invitation is always set to you, people that are at home, enjoying your time on your couch with your latte or all the good things that are surrounding you to come join us if you would like. We'd love to have you there. It's amazing. God's doing something fresh and new, and we're excited. There's just a lot of you out there. So good to see all your faces. Um, And as soon as we're done singing, we're going to say goodbye to our online audience, and then we'll partake of communion, and then we'll dismiss you all. So let's uh, respond to God. God, right now, we, we confess to you sin, maybe apathy, maybe judgmentalism. Maybe even that little bit of arrogance that that tends to look at other people that have not attained to a level that we have, and we judge. We don't know their story. We don't know the life circumstances that they faced. So if anything, what it should do, it should transform our hearts so we have compassion. And God, if we don't have compassion, make our hearts bleed. Like true, truly bleed. To feel. And we don't talk about feelings, God, in our culture today. Especially the church, there's a tendency to just hyper-focus on learning about God. But God, maybe that's that's where you're leading our church community, is to, to learn to feel pain for the other. To listen, to know how to advocate, to know how to step in the gap. So reshape us, Jesus, to be like you.